we just roll right into it. Yep. So Green Heat Miami. We are here, raring to go. Yes, we have uh, a really just so many things we want to cover, but we always start at the top of the hour. We have a really great guest. That was a great find, Kevin. Rose Ganguza. Rose Ganguza. She amazing. was amazing. She's yeah. considered the godmother of independent cinema. She's launched so many careers and she's worked with so many people. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. You might say she makes offers they can't refuse. <laughs> you could say that. You could say that. Rose Ganguza. I yeah. come to you today on the day of your daughter's wedding. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but I'm just going to mention some names. I'm going to, sure. yeah, I'm going to mention some names. Pelé. So that's <sighs> in the sports, that's in the sports arena, but you worked with him for five years. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, that is pretty yeah. incredible. The Michael Jordan of soccer. <laughs> Maybe I think uh, he might've tipped a little bit more fame than Michael Jordan in, in his time. So, Michael Jordan is the Pele of basketball. Sorry. <laughs> okay, we're just going to leave it at that. Um, yes. You're going to have to listen to the episode, but she's worked with some of the biggest stars in the film and entertainment industry. So this is really, really a great one. Absolutely. Yeah. But what a life she's had. The, the amazing godmother of independent film. This is Screen Heat Miami. I am your host, JL Martinez with. And I'm Kevin Sharpley. We are brought to you by Kijik Multimedia, Miami Media and Film Market, Cinevision, and Kamakol. Kamakol. Absolutely. Well, I think we need to jump into some of these stories, my friend. Yeah, let's dive straight in, dive into the Batman. I'm excited <sighs> about this movie. The Dark Knight is back and darker than ever. This yeah. is like so like this reminds me more of the Christopher Nolan stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm people know Robert Pattinson more from Twilight, I think. Right. Kind of dark, right? Thematically. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, I don't know um if I consider that dark. Well, but it's tween dark. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but and, and you know people are on the fence and it's always right. that way with batman you know well no not always because i think people felt that val kilmer was really uh such a such a great choice now again his batman wasn't at the top of the list but right. um you know with robert pattinson i think a lot of people are on the fence because they know him more from the twilight series but if you know the safety brothers who are mm -hmm. two directors that I love. He did a movie yeah. with them called Good Time. Oh, yeah. And that movie, I mean, you know, Robert Pattinson, he really took it there. And I've seen him in a lot of different roles. I mean, he's, he's an amazing, brilliant actor. And so as, as I've seen the teasers and the trailers, you know, you really do see another side of Robert Pattinson other than the Twilight, and I see the side of him that I've seen him in, in other things. And I think that it's going to be, you know, really, really, really amazing. In addition to the only cheat that I get, which is Zoe Kravitz. Yes. My honey. Wow. She's a great actress. Obviously, 
the daughter, right, of the legendary musician and fellow Miamian, right, Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Just and the cousin like, of our last episode, Jason Rothberg. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Screen Heat always brings it home to the fam. <laughs> Keep it in the fam. But Keep yeah, I'm really fam. excited about I'm really excited about this Batman and their mm-hmm. opening on IMAX. I right. mean, they're going hard. They're going big. No, they're going big. Yeah, there's going to be a special preview screening March 1st in more than 350 IMAX locations across the U.S. And according to Hollywood Reporter, many of these auditoriums have already sold out for this very special, what they're calling a DC fan event. The film will be released nationwide. Large, large, huge tempo release March the 4th, which is going to be the bellwether for how theatrical exhibition is going to go in 2022. I think the theaters, AMCs of the world, Regals, IMAX, they were in the dark and they sent out the bat signal and (laughs) they sent it out. They need a hero. There you go. I mean, they did have Spider-Man, Spider-Man No Way Home. That's right. Yeah, that's the it's the moving. It may end up being the best selling movie of all time. We'll yeah. have to wait and see, but it really did make its mark. So I think yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then you wonder why. Well, why are the studios and the theaters so obsessed with all these superhero movies? Why? Well, there you go. Make a lot of money, but one billion dollars. That's a tease <laughs> for later on in the show. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But when you hear this kind of big opening. Typically, when they have big openings like this, that means that the movie is more than likely going to be really, really good. So Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it looks great from the teasers and some of the photos that are coming out from Warner. It, I mean, this just looks incredible, like from the costumes to, like you mentioned, the, the, the great actors that they found and the locations, the, the Batmobile, like all that stuff is just so kick ass. Yeah. And so... I'm really looking for them to to drop it like it's hot. Oh, they will. Speaking of dropping it like it's hot. <laughs> yes, 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 Snoop yes. Dio double jizzle for rizzle, my nizzle. Yes, yes, the yes. Big dog from the West Side buying up his own record label. What started it all? Death Row Records now belongs to the iconic Snoop Dogg. Bought it out. Iconic. Snoop Dogg, he is really, really coming around full circle. Wow. And now imagine the PR machine behind this, because obviously he just announced this purchase just days before the upcoming Super Bowl, where he and Dr. Dre will be taking the stage at halftime in L.A. So how perfect is that timing? What a way to make an announcement. Really smart PR people behind this, I'm sure. Snoop Dogg, <laughs> you know, talk about someone who's had a long career. He really understands what yeah. it takes to stay in the news cycle, to mm-hmm. stay relevant. I think that, uh, you know, if his people weren't behind it, I, this is something it sounds like, you know, to have such a career that has spanned decades. Yeah, The person that is behind that more than likely is Snoop himself. Really smart businessman. He's made a lot of smart business moves. So I can't wait to to hear to hear what uh what they have cooking over there at the oh, new yeah. death row. Oh yeah. 
I think the dog pound is becoming a dog spa. That's what's going on. <laughs> maybe, or maybe and, it's both, you know, he kind of plays and Dr. Dre with their beats. Like these guys are moguls. They need to do a record. They need to do another record together. So let's see what mm-hmm. happens. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, the Oscar nominations, the Oscar yes. nominations, and there is a movie that was nominated, you know, speaking of dogs, there was a mm. movie that was nominated for Best Picture, Power, uh, uh, Power of the Dog, which, okay. I mean, that movie is one of my favorite movies uh, mm. of the season. But, uh, you know, Oscar nominations up again. Yep. I love a lot of the nominations. A lot yes. of the nominations uh, really hit home. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen all the movies. You know, you try your best to get right. to all the movies. But that is one power of the dog. Yeah. Uh, 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 Benedict Cumberbatch, another, I mean, tour de force performance from him. Sure. But, uh, the young actor, and um, I'm going to get his name in a minute, uh, who yeah. played his foil. I mean, this guy really hit it out of the park. So that's yeah, a movie no. that I, I do recommend. Yeah, that one, that one definitely had uh, tons of nominations. Dune as well was really, really big. And so you're talking about a sci-fi film that really was sort of epic and, and unique in scale and how they made that film and put it together after so many years of trying to remake that movie. It looks like they were finally able to pull it off. And then another oldie but goodie, Spielberg is back with West yeah. Side Story, which is basically huge obviously for not only the fact that it's based on a huge Broadway show and it's Spielberg but it really does a lot to highlight Latino stories in this country followed not so closely behind by Disney's animated feature Kanto which is also doing amazing amazing in terms of both its box office and its critical recognition so uh, a lot of Latino buzz at this year's Oscar which I know there's been a lot of uh, sort of upheaval from that community in Hollywood to try to get more in terms of recognition during award season. And so it seems like this year is, is also going to be an interesting one for them. You know, Del Toro's back, Nightmare Alley. Uh, you know, Guillermo has another film. You know, he's, he's a multi-Oscar winner as well. And so it's very interesting to see how these folks are just kind of like really continuing to push the envelope at the Oscars. Yeah. I mean, Dune, you know, I'm a big Dune fan. I have a project that used, you know, Dune was one of the inspirations for that project. But yeah. um, Villeneuve really did come with it. And he came with it strong, hard, well-deserved. You know, sci-fi is not the easiest in terms of connecting with the Academy, but it's well-deserved. You know, we can't, can't, can't. Licorice Pizza, which I really oh, yeah. love. Well, I have yeah. to jump in there and give a special congratulations to Brenda Gilbert, who is the co-founder of Braun Studios, which is the production company behind Licorice Pizza. She's an MMFM speaker. Uh, we just spoke to her member back in September at the conference right. and so excited for her. So she got three for Licorice Pizza, including, like you mentioned, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay. They were also involved in House of Gucci, which uh, a lot of folks felt like Lady Gaga was snubbed, but they did receive one Oscar nomination in the hair and makeup category. And then finally, they got one for Cyrano uh, in the costume design category. So uh, very, very interesting year for the Oscars indeed. But congrats to Brenda Gilbert and her entire team at Braun. Yes, but Nightmare Alley was another favorite of mine. I loved that movie, um, Guillermo del Toro. 
in full force and with all of his faculties, I think he threw everything into that one. And, mm. you know, I love a, a great noir. So, and then we cannot go past without mentioning Mr. Will Smith. Mm. This is his best outing. King Richard, so right. many nominations. Could this King be the Richard. year? You know, he's, he's been nominated for so many things, right? And, but just hasn't gotten there yet. Uh, so, you know, let's see if, you know, uh, happiness, I think he got nominated for Ali, but it seems like this was really a tour de force performance, uh, and also helps when it's based on a true story. I know, um, uh, pursuit of happiness as well, but it seems like this, this could be Will's year. Yeah. Will really did, a, a an amazing job, an amazing job in this performance. He disappeared into the role, so he definitely deserved it. I have to also give a nod to Javier Bardem in being the Ricardos. I mean, he, every time he comes out, it's, it's, you know, he really gives it every time he comes out. And then I would say that movie as a whole, I, Mm. I really loved it. I think that they did an amazing job in that movie as a whole. We're going to not go too full in uh, for the Oscars, we still have. We time. could spend an hour just on this, but we have plenty of time. Like I said, the Mar- the Oscars are going to be late this year once again, end of March, I believe March twenty seventh. So we're going to have plenty of time to really dig deep into each of these categories. Over yeah, the we want to. Yeah, definitely get into all the categories. Give love to all the categories. So, you know, we had definitely had to at least touch on some of the key notes of these Oscar nominations. And now it's time to, I was a little bit premature before, but now it's time to jump straight into our keynote speaker. (laughs) Great interview. (laughs) Yeah, an amazing interview with Rose Ganguza. The godmother. Here we go. So I think you guys probably heard that we're recording. All right. That is essential to doing a podcast. If not, we're just doing theater. (laughs) That's right. So, um. (laughs) JL, I'm going to let you go with the name of our guest because uh, you speak Italian. You have an Italian wife. I can say it in an American way, but uh, I'm sure that you can give it with the emphasis that it deserves. Kevin, now you're giving away way too much, but uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, yes, so we uh, are very honored to be interviewing today uh, an amazing uh, film producer and, and creator of, of some amazing works and uh, known as the, the godmother of independent cinema. Uh, Rose Ganguza is here with us today. I think I, I got close. Well. In there. Yes, yeah, that was good. That All was right. great. I felt the power of it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So, so Rose, thank you so much for joining us. As Kevin mentioned, we've done a few of these now, and but every time we start one of these interviews, we're so excited by everyone's journey because, you know, it's, it's an old saying uh, that I, I told one of my mentors many years ago. I, I heard it on a comedy show, actually. It's, uh, there's no one way to greatness. Greatness is the way. So we're, we're very excited to hear some of your stories and your background, Rose, and everything yeah. that you've accomplished in the industry. Yeah. I think greatness is what you have in your soul and how you treat others. That's the most important thing. And if you start from there, then you're all good. Mm. (laughs) I wish that was a credo for more people. Well said. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have to pass that along. We should put that right there on the website. I think so. That's a good one. We, so we all, keep... of these, all of these life lessons, like the people you see on the way up are the same ones you're going to see on the way down. That's and right. I always, 
I always said to my film students, you know, when you get to the top of the ladder, make sure you turn around and put your hand down for for the next person trying to get up. And if you if you live your life like that, you know, you're going to feel a much better sense of accomplishment than just being uh, an idiot. I wanted to say something <laughs> else. I don't know for a censor, but you know, and and you know, just people just don't like you, but they put up with you because you've got some kind of talent and God made a mistake and gave it to you, you know, whatever. But, you know, that's, we, we see that a lot in this industry for sure. Yeah. And you've seen a lot in this industry over time because you've worked with so many yeah. incredible people and yeah. we're going to get to those people Yeah, soon enough. But uh, we want to hear a little bit about you. So can you uh, oh, tell us where you're from, where you were born and where you were raised? Yeah, uh, well, both my parents are from Italy, uh, were from Italy and uh, my father um, emigrated when he was around nine, they came when they were, were children, uh, but raised in New Jersey. Um, and my grandfather was in the food business and then my father's family created a very large uh, chain of supermarkets and then department stores all the way up and down the East Coast. And so I was raised in retail, I guess, and um, a very large Italian family on both sides. And um, I think that's, that's really where it all starts, isn't it? And, um, and my father always believed that you had to work and work hard to get what you wanted. So he made us start working at a very early age. So it was really a good life lesson because my early teens, I was working in stores and nobody was supposed to know who I was. So I didn't get any privileges or anything and had to punch a card like everybody else. But you, you got to deal with all sorts of people because you were working with them on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think the, the, the biggest asset that you need to work in a business like entertainment is you have to know how to deal with all kinds of people. And as we all know, creative people are especially difficult because in order to be on the top of your game as a creative, you have to be a little bit crazy. And so I always say I have a doctorate, but, but my, my biggest lesson was working for my father and, um, and, and dealing with, with people on a day-to-day -day basis and learning how to communicate. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to say as a producer myself, you know, you're, it's such a hard job because you're dealing with so many different kinds of people and so many different kinds of personalities. Yeah. And oftentimes you have to serve as, you know, that foil, the person that's in between, you know, that doesn't, you have to take a side oftentimes and a hard line oftentimes, but more often than not, you have to marry, you know, divergent opinions and, you know, divergent styles and talents so right. it sounds like you were you were set up pretty well from I was the start up, yeah but when I was 17 um I met actually 16 uh it, in those days uh, my father's business was getting a lot of people inviting him to go overseas and do different things and teach people how to set things up the way we did in the United States and one of the places uh, in those days was to go to Brazil because Brazil was an emerging third world country, but with a large population, and everything else. 
and I met this um, these two guys, and one of whom became my boyfriend. And uh, he came from a very wealthy family in the south of Brazil. And and you know, when you're 16 years old and you fall madly in love, you you do everything to you know be cool. So I learned to, how to speak. I already spoke Spanish, but I learned how to speak Portuguese. And that, so I did my undergraduate and did, you know, English literature and, but, but also produced a bunch of concerts in those days for college. In those days, the, the universities and the colleges did really great shows with, with really big names because in those days, the college circuit was a big deal, you know. They still do. I mean, yeah, you know, because they, I mean, they have budgets set aside. We were booking acts that I was booking acts like I mean, like I did a really early on concert with Carol King and James Taylor and the Young Rascals. I don't even know if you know who they were, but, you know, like we had the Blues Project, you know, all of that. And that's how I met Sid Bernstein. And then Sid Bernstein brought the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five to the States and then became the producer of um became the producer of Hullabaloo, which was a huge show on NBC. And I kind of, you know, mentored under him. Um, and then years later, when he was kind of on the balls of his ass, you know, because life had treated him really badly because he was one of the nice guys in the music business. And his big dream was to get the Beatles back together. But the only one who wanted to do it was John Lennon. Um, but years later, when I was at Warner's, I got to give Sid an office and a desk and, you know, get him back on his game. And that felt really good because he was such a great influence um, in my life. And with all the people that he helped, you know, when he died at his funeral, I thought like all these people were, because he was responsible for so many people's careers, including the Beatles. But the only musical, I mean, place was packed, but the only real music star that was there was Lenny Kravitz. And I oh. thought that was really sweet, you know, that, that he came to the mm. funeral. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that says a lot about Lenny as a person. You always it hear does. good stories about Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty and I incredible. I always like to mention that because it shows where a person's heart is, you know, and if they've got a good heart, you know. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, funny because right before I was on, this call, you know, on the Zoom, um, I have a documentary and the documentary is about this artist that Purvis was friends with the artist. Um, he's p- since passed and he did a eulogy on his uh, Facebook page. And so, you know, that's going to go in our documentary. Of course. And, but that's the kind of person that he is. But this is connected to what you were saying at the top, which is as you move up, you know, yeah. kind of take care of people as you move up but don't forget a- who who helped you you know along the way i mean and i was still i mean i was just like a freshman in college when i met sid bernstein i wasn't you know like <sighs> i couldn't do anything for him in those days he didn't need anything from me but um but but you know that's one of the people and then when i got to graduate school at columbia um the the guy i eventually who's my first husband who I met there, um, his cousin was, his cousin was Jerry Orbach, who in those days was like the top person um, on Broadway. Uh, And um, so when Bob Fosse finally got Chicago up, 
that's how I got the job on Chicago was because Jerry and I really, and even after I divorced my first husband, Jerry and I stayed very close until he died. Um, but again, that was my, you know, that was a really early introduction into the business and being with a lot of people um, who are kind of movers and shakers here in New York and in that not just the Broadway, but the film and television community in New York and being with these people every week, you know, for dinner and, you know, and just, just hanging out and every night at Joe Allen's and, you know, that kind of thing. So a lot of that early, but, but, you know, but I was studying to be a diplomat. So, you know, it was kind of a, but like the, the pull of this business, if you have a creative bone in your body, is greater. So you go to the easy answer, like everybody I went to school with, like, you know, became a diplomat or they, you know, they went to the state department and, or the CIA in those days, but these, those were real jobs that they paid you for. Mm. And then you get to select a job that you have to like work really hard for every dollar that you make, you know? Mm. Um, so those are the career paths that we choose and, um, and the people we meet along the way. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I just, I was going to say like that the time frame in New York, and I always talk about like, there's certain places and certain times that you look back on. And you wonder the folks that were coming up, you know, even just like you mentioned Broadway and the theater scene, but the independent film scene with, you know, young filmmakers like Scorsese running around and doing yeah. their things and Woody Those Allen. Guys all became my friends, you know, right. guys that I grew up with. I mean, and the other, you know, significant thing in my life was uh, you know, was learning to, to speak fluent Portuguese, which, which gave me a full fellowship, a full ride and, mm. and stipend to Columbia. Um, but it was because I, because I had, you know, a PhD and because I spoke fluent Portuguese that I got to become Pele's manager because Warner mm. needed someone to negotiate his deal to bring him to the United States to play for the cosmos and then i stayed with ballet for five years but so it all kind of crosses over there's not any bad experience you know and people say well how does one thing have to do with another but it all it all worked in a very kind of magical way wow. yeah this again your eclecticism which is look broadway a music and then broadway yeah. Yeah. And then moving into this kind of sports realm, which I want to get in that pocket for a minute. Yeah, I mean, LA, I mean, come the on. People who brought and created, who wanted to bring soccer to America were the Erdogans. And of course, the Erdogans were Warner Music. Mm. And in those days, my office was right next to Ahmed Erdogan. And, and the people coming in and out were the Stones and Madonna. And, oh. you know, I mean, those were really heady times in the music industry. Mm, so absolutely. I got to be with, oh, and also, you know, in the, in the heyday of the cosmos. I mean, every night when we were in the locker room, it was Elton John, it was Mick Jagger, it was, you know, it was mm. everybody because it was cool and it was hot, it was Studio 54, it was, you know. So years later when Fisher and Stevens and I did the documentary about the cosmos, which is called Once in a Lifetime, you know, all of that played into that whole story. It was the 70s, you know, it was kind of like this weird era in New York was 
going bankrupt, but at the same time, it was the hottest and most exciting place to be on earth. I was going to say creatively, it was such an incredible. Creatively, it was incredible. Yeah. 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 And I imagine the freedom back then, because we think now like everything is so hyper documented because of technology and social media. Yeah the amount of freedom that people had where they knew that they could do things in intimate spaces that weren't going to necessarily make the cover go viral or be on Instagram or whatever. No, you know? no, we didn't have any of that. But it was pre-AIDS, you know, which was is a very important point because there was all that freedom. And then all of a sudden there wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. and if you see the way society changed after AIDS hit first in New York and then every place else, it's very similar to what happened in COVID. And these things tend to be very disruptive to the creative process. And of course, with AIDS, we lost so many, so many amazing people um, in the creative community. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just want to get, you know, into some of the specifics before we get too far, specific names, but I mean, Pele, how was that? How was it with this In that period of time, Um, Pelé was not just by my estimation, but by the estimation of the world, the most famous person in the world. We would meet with presidents and popes and and everybody would call him king in in Portuguese was rei, and everybody called him rei. And it was like, we would be with like, you know, everybody would be bowing down to him, no matter what world leader we were. If we were in South Africa or Spain or Italy or Russia, it was like he was the biggest thing on earth. So it was, it was pretty amazing, you know, traveling all over the world with him, taking care of his, uh, you know, doing all of his business and, 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 you know, just doing everything he was doing. He was a goodwill ambassador, but he was very much loved and everywhere we went was pretty chaotic. Um, but he took it all in, in stride. He, you know, he never, he never um, stopped recognizing his fans or the people that, you know, even like when we were in places like Africa, we were in Zimbabwe, people walked from South Africa to get to Zimbabwe to just see him there, you know, and so those kind of things that you see, even in Japan in 1988, when we were in Japan, in Tokyo, we opened the Big A Stadium there. Um, Japan didn't have professional soccer. We were the beginning of professional soccer there. And I brought every major soccer star from around the world to that stadium. We were there for two weeks and it was incredible. You know, 100,000 people and, you know, major, major sponsors that I had in those days. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was an incredible journey, um, wow. for sure. And you and talk it, about think that think that his resuscitation was in America, which was is not a soccer country, no at all. Yeah, you, you talk about someone who has this history of being the nice guy, you know, yeah. the good person, mm-hmm. and you know, you can see that. Now, for us, you know, I don't know if this is an exclusive, but, you know, hearing it directly from you, when you hear it from many people, then, you know, the tendency is that that's true. So that's really good yeah. to hear. And, you know, someone we who were, was the biggest person in the world, the biggest yeah, star in the world at the time. Yeah. yeah. We were doing a, a big press conference in Milano once um, and with uh, Maradona was playing in, in Napoli at the same time. And. Maradona was a complete jerk to everybody 
And right at the point of the press conference, he had just gotten his wife and his girlfriend pregnant at the same time. What are the odds, right? And wow. the Italian press, you could imagine the paparazzi was all over him. And I'm at the door going, you have to come out, you know, you have to get downstairs. Everybody's down there, you know, Boris Becker was there. We had Ayrton Senna, mm. you know, and, and who was also a dear friend of mine and, and ballet and everything. It was this big thing for, um, for Berlusconi, for Canale Cinque. Ah. And it was, it was insanity because Maradona did not want to be anywhere near the Italian press. Mm. Yes, yeah, so we, but, but he and Pelé are just, were just like polar opposites. And even afterwards, when, when he went back to Argentina, when Maradona went back to Argentina, he kept wanting Pelé to appear on his television show. He had a TV show in Buenos Aires. And it was like the hardest thing to get the two of them together because mm. they really didn't like each other, you know? <laughs> so. That competitive spirit. Yeah. <laughs> two greats. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you're with Pele. You finish this kind of tour, this relationship with Pele. Well, no, you... simultaneously, uh, because of Pele's status within Warner, in those days it was Warner Communications, now it's Time Warner. Um, I was dealing directly with Steve Ross, who, of course, you know, was the head of the company and started working for Warners as well in doing all sorts of things in Latin America for Warner Brothers. So I was flying back and forth between the East Coast and the West Coast and doing things and all. And it was at that point that I started getting more, well, the, the whole relationship with Pelé started it, because of his interest in doing some movies. And lo and behold, John Huston was the person who wanted Pelé to be in victory. So once I started negotiating movie contracts for him, then a whole new thing opened up. And um, we, so I started doing what was called debt equity swaps in Latin America to get more films made in Latin America by American studios. And I came up with a, a way of financing those films with, with what we called in those days block currencies. Um, and it wasn't just in Brazil, it was in uh, Argentina, Venezuela, all over the place. And if you notice at that particular point in time, there were a lot of American and British films being made in those territories. And the reason they were being made was which a bunch of people needed to get their money out of Latin America legally. And the only legal way to do it was a can of film because there was wow. someone to put dollars in. a. And then that led me to Jim Henson. So after I left... But when Pelé had to go back to Brazil, I worked for Jim Henson and, and did all of his stuff in Latin America and in Europe. And really? in Europe, we were doing Barter Syndication with Coca-Cola. And in Latin America, we were doing, you know, uh, the Jim Henson Hour. We were doing Fraggle Rock. We were doing all of that stuff. Oh, so, wow. so one thing kind of led to another. We did films like Blame It on Rio, Moon Over Parador with Richard Dreyfuss and Raul Julia, you know, those kind of films, um, you know, at Play in the Fields of the Lord, which was uh, Kathy Bates and Tom Berenger and, you know, like, and Daryl Hannah, you know, like all of those films were financed uh, through this scheme that I had invented. Yeah. Mm. Oh, you invented it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, it was better than carrying hordes of money around my waist in one of those little things, you know, to like yeah, under yeah. your clothes, like yeah. the, the invisible yeah. uh, money yeah. holder. Yeah. Right. I guess that's hence where the godmother title maybe comes. From. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's another godmother in Colombia, but she did not fare as well, apparently. <laughs> no, no, but um, but so, in, Brazil, in those days and in Argentina and all those countries, the Americans wouldn't they if you signed a contract with the americans they wanted everything in cash and i can't mm. tell you how much cash i delivered to major executives from studios i and they would go like this and they'd put it in their drawer i never knew if the money ever got where it was supposed to get wow. uh, yeah for our listeners rose just put her hands up and pulled in <laughs> so if you guys can imagine right. you might have to take a little clip and put it on the website yeah. <laughs> visualize that so you can see it I think yeah. you can visualize it's kind of like Miami in the 80s, right? Where it's, <laughs> cash it's the same time. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I, I, man, I, this is everything that I knew it was going to be already. <laughs> but um, I, I we're only halfway of, through. My goodness. Not even. Yeah. I mean, we're going to go on all, all, all night. But, you know, this makes me think because we're in that pocket of Pele and, and you. And so Pele had his challenges. You know, as he as he uh, came up, of, of course, being black, um, but you're a woman in those times, a woman executive in those times. Yeah. Um, how was it? Well, to- I was the only, you know, somebody like only a few years ago, I had done a film uh, uh, with Jan Ratcliffe and um, the guy who gave me the money for that movie said, oh, you broke the glass ceiling talking about this particular movie. And I said, honey, I I broke the glass ceiling back in 1970. I mean, what are we talking about here? You know, I mean, 2008, you're you're a little bit behind the curve. But I was, yeah, I was, but if you don't think about it, you know, like in those days, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm a woman, I have to break the glass ceiling. Nobody thought about that. You just did what you had to do and do your work. But um, I, I wish people would just get over themselves, truly. You know, I mean, I think life would be so much easier if we didn't objectify ourselves. And, and especially I say that to women, because I think we do ourselves a lot of harm. Um, but um, so I was the only in those days and the first female manager in professional soccer. So that meant I had to go to Switzerland a lot and deal with these really raunchy guys at FIFA. And as you know, FIFA represents a lot of power and a lot of money. And they, in Pelé, got the greatest giggle out of the fact that these guys would just bend over and do anything I asked them to do. Because he was having, at that time, he was having a problem with FIFA, but, you know, they were at a bit at odds. And, and Pelé never, he was one of the only players who didn't go for all of the schemes and machinations that they were doing at the time, which at the time weren't widely known. They got known afterwards. Um, So if you try to play the straight game and do it the right way, they were a little bit tricky, these guys, but they were somehow intimidated by me, not because I'm intimidating, I'm not, but I just don't, I mean, there wasn't a woman in sight. There There wasn't a woman anywhere. And when you go to FIFA headquarters, it looks like something out of a James Bond movie. They're, they're black limousines going up a hill. You're in the middle of nowhere, a gigantic bomb shelter. 
it's like it look it literally looks like you're in the middle of a james bond movie it's wow. it's insanity and so those yeah. trips were and those negotiations with them were very very um complicated and then when i was doing this thing in japan i reached out to a very famous south african player named jomo somo and we had a lovely uh a lovely conversation to start and i said would you like to come to japan all these other players paulo rossi kevin crawl you know um all of the these people are coming and i'd love to have you come and i didn't think about the ban on South African players and, and the restrictions. I got everybody to, to Tokyo. While I'm in Tokyo, I get called from FIFA in Switzerland, had to fly back to Switzerland and defend getting a black soccer player from South Africa and bringing him to Tokyo. Wow. And um, Jomo someone got to stay, but it was it was complicated. And, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that happened. And maybe if I wasn't a woman, I wouldn't have gotten away with it. Who knows? I don't ah, know. yeah. or maybe you're just a great negotiator. Who knows? <laughs> no, it wasn't that. They were just like they were just silly, stupid, you know, and it was fine. I mean, it was OK. Mm. But but those are the kind of things that happened. And uh I mean, those it's high stakes poker is what soccer is internationally. Americans don't understand that because they don't, you know, World Cup right. comes every four years. They may watch it. They may not. It's not a big deal here. Mm. Yeah, well, it's we're the most popular sport in the world. In that's the what world. I'm saying. We're, we're on our own little bubble. And obviously we have our own, I guess, football, which consumes a lot of our time. But yeah. again, is not what soccer is internationally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... You're already working with uh, what was uh, Time. Well, it wasn't Time Warner then, was it? Um, it was Warner Communications. Yeah, Warner Communications. So you're working with Warner Communications um, and you're moving through the pipeline. How long did you stay at Warner's? Uh, five years. Mm. And then I went to, to Henson. Mm. And I went to Henson wow. from there. And Henson's, you were how, how long there? Uh, I was there for a few years, but then Jim died in the middle of it and a lot of things just had to be restructured and all um we were working on a really really big latin american project at the time um but and i was working directly with jim and the creature shop in london and mm. it was glorious i mean jim henson was a genius so yeah just to be anywhere near him was you know special yeah and unlike yeah. the world of soccer um jim's company was run by women so hmm. oh wow I mean, yeah because yeah. his daughter lisa henson i know lisa, very yeah. yeah very involved and so yeah absolutely and jane you know at the time even after they divorced she was still very much uh a, a major figure in that company mm. so yeah yeah i think a lot of people don't know you know people not in the industry don't know the depth that the henson company has in the industry you know, yeah. they've, they've created so many, when you talk so about much technology right. is, is around because of them, you know, at the time we were doing 2d uh, animation. Um, they, they did 3d, they were doing a lot of, to begin with stop motion, which in those days was all handcrafted in the Muppet mm -hmm. mansion on 69th street here in Manhattan. 
um, there was a, a whole extension of that mansion and hundreds of artists who were building out these small figures and and then they would do the stop motion with those and those were the fraggles and um mm. but you saw in all the other you know like things like dark crystal and um all, oh, yeah. all done that way and but he was experimenting when he died he was experimenting with a lot of new technology mm. that yeah, eventually okay. became mainstream yeah almost like what george lucas was doing with industrial light and magic exactly wow exactly and they crossed paths because mm. as you know the creature shop, which was owned by Henson, created R2-D2 in the right. Star Wars. Yeah, and even Frank Oz, who voiced a lot of the Muppets and yes. Sesame Street characters, is also... Yeah, and I know. worked with all those guys, and they were just amazing people. Mm. And that was an amazing place. It really was. It was like walking into fantasy land. It really wow. was. Yeah, that's incredible. So, yeah, yeah, at that point, you've already brushed shoulders with and worked with icons. I mean, that's, that's people and lovely people. You know, that's the good news was they were all nice people. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're a lot of the bad stories um, here, here in this industry. Yeah. So you move from, move on from the Henson's. So when you're moving on from the Henson's, did you know what you were going to do or. You know, I, I, I started getting, doing a lot of um, structuring and finance stuff was doing a lot of stuff in the music field for a while as well. Um, Stayed, you know, stayed close to a lot of people Um, and also doing a lot of really big events and and working with a lot of different things. I mean, at the time there was a lot of animation stuff going on. So we were doing things with holograms and, you know, things like that. So I was working with a lot of interesting creatives um, here in New York, um, in, in different areas of the business, but, um, you know, it, and then, uh, working with a lot of children's programming because of the Henson years. And, uh, and there was a lot of that, you know, and, and then eventually, um, started, started working, um, with CBS and, and some of the networks on, you know, a, a lot of programming and, and different things like that. But my real love was to do films. And I, I just, and that, and that started um, funnily enough with, because I was so good at raising money, it was like, um, I got a call from a friend and she said to me, um, you know, I have this kid and she's going to lose her film and she needs a million dollars. And I said, well, when she does, she need the money by. And they said tomorrow because- wow the guys are going to take away her film. And I said, who is it? And they said, Amy Redford. And I said, um, I didn't ask the question that everybody else, I I think, asked when this woman called me, because I knew instinctively working with so many young filmmakers that the last thing she was going to do was ask her dad for the money. So, and the name of the film was The Guitar, and it starred um, Saffron Burroughs. And by chance, I had a friend who was a Greek shipping magnet. It sounds like funny. He was staying at the Palace Hotel in New York and he was on his way to the airport to go get a flight back to Athens. And I said to him, Petros, I I have this really nice young lady and she needs a million dollars. And um, can you kind of go by the, you know, the editing room on your way to the airport? Because 
maybe you can help, you know, doing this damsel in distress kind of thing. And he was Greek and, you know, anyway. And Amy, Amy said to me, don't you think you should be here? And I go, no, honey, you should just meet him, mm-hmm. talk to him, and then I'll take care of the rest. And sure wow. enough, in 24 hours, he sent the money. And we didn't even have a contract. Wow. So when the film premiered at Sundance, I was sitting with, with Bob, with her father. And after it, she was so sweet, you know, from the podium saying, you know, that I had saved her and saved the film and everything. And Bob turns to me and said, well, after the film was over and it was a lovely, wonderful film. And and he said to me, at least she didn't embarrass us, Rose. And I go, she would never embarrass (laughs) you, you know, I mean, but, but so anyway, so this guy, Petros, um, sent his daughter, his daughter's girl, uh, boyfriend and her friends, and they all came to Sundance. Mm. And what they got for that money was to have dinner with Robert Redford. So, <laughs> and when I finally introduced Robert Redford to the, to the daughter, she was like speechless, right? Because this is like, you know, this is the Sundance kid, you know? Wow. And, um, and she goes, she, nothing could come out. And she had one of those moments like Jennifer Grey in, in Dirty Dancing, you know, I carried the watermelon. She said, my mother would be so jealous. <laughs> and Bob just looked at her and, you know, didn't say anything. He was very gracious. And then she goes, I can't believe I said that. I finally beat Robert Redford. And I said, my mother would be so jealous that I met you. And that was. Wow. And it just cost him a million bucks. It's like in decent and It only cost a million bucks. <laughs> Yeah. You could take that one on the chin for a million bucks. Yeah. So. Anyway. So wow. wow that, so that's a great foray into that part of the world. I mean, yeah. what an incredible story. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Jump you know, into that. It just yeah, it's just there were things happening. You know, at the same time, I'd been, you know, obviously raising money for my son's films and and for that company, you know, Borderline and all the early stuff they did, you know, after school uh, with Ezra and then, um, and then Martha Marcy May Marlene with Lizzie Olson and then um, James White and, and then, you know, all the things that they were getting involved in and just basically running, uh, running point for, for those three young directors and then one thing led to another. And then I started teaching graduate school at NYU at uh, Tisch and then getting more and more involved with young directors and then, Mm. you know, and making, helping them make their films. And that, you know, and that's just really where it it kind of began. I mean, you know, this desire to sort of give back and because realizing that you, nobody was understanding, you know, nobody was teaching film students about business. Nobody, they, nobody, you know, and the hardest thing to find is a producer who understands finance, you know, because if you are creative and you understand finance, because money is the most creative part about filmmaking, but certainly independent filmmaking, if you don't have the money, you can't, you know, you can't do anything. And, and kids weren't getting taught this. Yeah. And, um, you know, and building relationships, which is so yeah. important. And, and, and teaching kids not to be jerks. No. Right. Was it is Google's tagline? Don't be evil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, have you met James Franco? Yeah. But, um, right. Yeah. You know, 
but um, oh boy. yeah, it's, it, it's hard. It's mm. really hard. It's hard. Yeah. But it's interesting that you say that because, you know, and you're right, because obviously, you know, Kevin and I went to the same film school at the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. And uh, so much of it was, you know, theory and understanding who the different directors were from different genres and decades and history and and all this kind of watch Turner classic movies stuff. Right? right yeah which you know like Tarantino learned at a video store yeah uh, <laughs> but exactly. you know probably saved a lot of money but but I think one of the most important classes I took and I was lucky we had it remember Bill O'Dowd's class the the legal aspects of motion pictures yeah and you know he was a lawyer producer that you know basically had studied got his MBA or his uh law degree at Harvard and really got into the idea of like this is how you make a deal because so many filmmakers not only in the financing but in the deal making process get screwed over as oh you know. big time i mean it's like i just want to make my film i just right. want to let me sign on the dotted line whatever it is but which is <laughs> so i always say that this business is an equal opportunity offender mm. and i always use the story of amy as a perfect example there's a kid who grew up in the business whose father arguably created the independent film space through creating Sundance and helping young filmmakers and all. And his own daughter fell prey because she tried to do this on her own, mm -hmm. fell prey to the exact things that I was trying to teach my, my film students not to fall into. And there you go. And the, the schemes in this business, in the independent film world, the kind of people that come out of the woodwork, oh, I can finance your film with natural gas leases. I can, <laughs> And then you find out this guy is like doing business out of a Kinko's in Arizona or something. And you can fall, but, but you don't have to even be a, a neophyte to fall for those things. A lot of seasoned people, if they think there's money coming, they they fall like leaves from a tree in autumn. I mean, they're like, mm. oh, money, money, you know, give me money. And they don't care that it's coming from some, look at, look what happened to Scorsese on, on um, Wolf of Wall Street with the guys from Malaysia oh, right. or yeah. the guys who sit on the, I sit on the docks in the big yachts at, at Cannes who are Israeli arms dealers, you know, I've met all of them there. You can't even imagine these people, you, you, you know, and they're dangling money in front of filmmakers and money for filmmakers is like manna from heaven. I mean, you just, yeah. And they don't they don't bother to think of where it's coming from or what the what the ramifications of taking that money is. And I always say, like, you know, I kind of use a New York reference, but it's like if you were to go to Little Italy and some guy, you know, with a crooked nose said, hey, I can give you. You know, I can, right. like loan, they're like loan sharks. Mm. You're never going to get out from under that. And you will probably lose your film. You'll lose sure. all creative, you know, um, mm. rights to it and everything else. Right. Yeah, and you imagine, you know, these films, they take three years. They could take four years. They could take longer, you know? And so that's oh, a yeah. big chunk out of your it life. Take 10 years yeah. of your life. Yeah, so I think yeah. part of it, yeah, what Kevin was alluding to is the desperation, right? After so many years of... You're, you're just desperate. You yeah. really are desperate. And that's why I always say that the hardest film to make is your second film. Hmm. You can get through your first one. <laughs> you're you Scratching and clawing. Lottery, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, that's yes. what Sidney Lumet said. The only reason to make your first film is because it's your first film. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I you said, spent, that's second. I spent lots of hours with Sidney Lumet. And I, I always say he was one of the directors because he came right before the, the Easy Riders Raging Bull directors, mm. you know, the Peter Bogdanoviches and the Coppolas and everything. Sidney was really the real deal. He mm. was he was all that we think of independent filmmaking and and sticking true to whatever your creative process was that's who he was and yeah. and he was brilliant absolutely brilliant man one oh, of the most yeah. incredible people to know if it's, you were it's, in this business yeah it's the, the main book that i remember from film school was his making movies that from, uh, book. little book little book every one of my my film students right? always gave a copy of that book it's 90 what is it 90 pages it's like yeah. all you need to know it's, it's an easy book. read and like you said you get so many gems out of that one <laughs> little yeah. tiny book you it's incredible anything else no that was <laughs> everybody's primer was that mm. book mm. it was him obviously marty scorsese who's like an encyclopedia my dear friend peter bogdanovich oh, um, yeah. but another person who you're going to laugh at me for saying this but one of the most brilliant men who created a lot of stuff behind the camera and who was an inspiration and, and one of the most brilliant men I've ever met and spent time with was Jerry Lewis. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that man was a genius. Yeah, definitely. Genius behind the camera. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he created. And think about Bellboy, which mm. he, he owed Paramount another film and, um, and the studio didn't want to do it because he said, oh, I'm going to do a film where the main character doesn't say a word, you know, and um, and Paramount said, you know, something, you know, why don't you take that film? You do that film. And so he owned it lock, stock and barrel. Mm. And he, he became a gazillionaire off of that movie. But besides everything else, he was very smart. Every film he ever did for the studio had a clause in it that after 25 years, the film's rights all reverted back to him. Wow. Oh. Ownership. So before he died, he cashed in big time, real big time. So that's why he could afford to do all those telethons yeah. later. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had money in the bank. <laughs> and a lot of money in the bank. Wow. That's incredible. I, I am a big believer in, you know, artists should get their worth and they should yeah. get paid for their worth. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jerry Lewis did, he created a whole lane. You know, there was no Jerry Lewis Lane before yeah, I mean, him. So he created nobody thought he'd have when when uh, D. Martin and Jerry Lewis broke up as a comedy act. Nobody thought after that happened, they thought, oh, what's going <laughs> to happen to them? And then right. he went on to be one of the biggest people in the motion picture industry. He uh -huh. really learned his craft hmm. and became a much, much richer man than Dean Martin could ever be. You know? Yeah. So I'm going to mention three things. Yeah. And, you know try to get to all three of them two names and a film right. so uh scorsese yeah can you say anything on yeah. scorsese yeah um i've been a huge marty scorsese fan from day one um i did the tribute to marty scorsese that was done at the old waldorf astoria where everybody in the film business nobody said no to me everybody came even jerry lewis in his wheelchair was one of the last things he did before he died um, but he was an inspiration to me, uh, and he was the reason I did New York at the movies and one of the best interviews I've ever done in my life. Um, 
and uh, I, I just think he's a master. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned Absolutely. Bogdanovich. Yeah. Who Peter, you knew personally. Can yeah, you just Peter speak a little bit on that? We, um, we met when he did the sequel to Last Picture Show, Texasville. Um, and uh, we stayed friends all the way through that. And then him being on The Sopranos and everything. And we worked on a number of um, projects. We developed a lot of projects together. A lot of people don't realize that Peter at the end after he did They All Laughed, which was a film that he wanted Dorothy Stratton to become a star because of that film. Um, he put his own money into the film and he lost it all when Dorothy Stratton was killed. The right. famous Star 80 story. And so um, everything he did from that point forward went through the bankruptcy courts. And even though he had helped so many great filmmakers in their latter days, especially people like Orson Welles who lived with him and everything, and Peter lost everything. Wow. So my relationship with Peter was in the sadder part of his life, which was the second half of his life. Mm -hmm. um, but he was the most brilliant um, chronicler of Hollywood history and the great works of great, the great actors and the great, and the great directors, um, but a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, he and Scorsese are the two most amazing film historians uh, that if you read anything that they've written, you'll know a lot. <laughs> yeah. That, that's good for our, our listeners that uh, listen in to get an education. So that's that's great. Um, the film, and then I'll, I'll pass it off to JL, uh, Kill Your Darlings, Kill yeah. Your Darlings, that, a film that I love. Yeah, um, thank you. That was a, that was a labor of love. Um, so I wanted to do uh, the book Just Friends, which Patti Smith had written about her relationship with Robert Maplethorpe. And I brought in two film students from NYU who wanted won the Academy, uh, the Student Academy Award. And uh, both of them, Nicole Cassell, who now has become a huge filmmaker um, with uh, ev everything you can imagine on television, but she had done uh, her first film with uh, Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick called The Woodsman and uh, John Krakitis. And when, the, when I couldn't for love or money, I offered a million dollars to Patti Smith to get the rights to that book. She had sold it to Peter Morgan and she wanted to do it big scale and everything. And I just wanted to do a real down and dirty film about Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe. Anyway, so I said to John Krakitis, I feel really bad you know, that we can't do this. I said, do you have anything else? And he said, I wrote this script when I was at Yale, but it's been 10 years and I can't get it done. And I said, what's it about? And he said, the Beats. And before, when they were at Columbia University and this, you know, and this, this uh, murder mystery. And I said, wow, that's great. Let me read it. I read the script. I fell in love with it. It was one of the best scripts I'd ever read. I said, we're going to do it. Give me three months. And that's, and Dan Radcliffe had just finished um, the Harry Potter series and was doing How to Succeed in Business on Broadway. I got to his dad, got backstage at one of the matinees and convinced him to play Allen Ginsberg. And then I called Michael C. Hall, I called Jack Houston, I called everybody I knew, you wanna be in this movie. And we were gonna shoot it at Columbia and I went to school at Columbia. So 
they gave me permission to shoot there, even though they hadn't allowed any shooting at Columbia for 22 years because of Barbara Streisand and the mirror has two faces. And um, Dan and I made the film. Yeah. And I loved it. It was great. And we shot it in 21 days. Oh, wow. That's for that's no simple. money. It was a $3 million budget. We free, we froze our asses off in the middle of March <laughs> shooting that movie on the Hudson River. And Dan went into the Hudson River at like 20 below zero. Got pneumonia. We lost our last two days of shooting because he was in the hospital um, oh my gosh. with the drip. Yeah. And, and the line producer kept saying, we got to get Dan back to the set. I go, I'm not ki killing Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> but we've stayed very close. He's one of my favorite people. And he's just a lovely, lovely and very talented person. Yeah. And that film is a gem. That film is a gem. It's, um, I'm very proud of that movie. I'll tell you a story uh, at another point where I almost choked Danny Glover to death. Uh, <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> you didn't yeah, tell me that part. I, I didn't tell you about that. Well, maybe it wasn't just me, but uh, he he narrates one of my documentaries. Oh wow! And so um, he came three. Well, I'm not going to go into it right now. We'll, uh, we'll talk about it another time. But, but uh, yeah. yeah, no, I, I think you know, sort of where this conversation it's almost becoming like a masterclass, particularly for a lot of the independent filmmakers that listen to our podcast. So you know, what I'd like. Rose, if you don't mind, is, you know, what, what advice would you kind of give a young filmmaker now that has a script that has this indie, this story that they desperately have to tell, you know, not just from a creator, but really from a business standpoint. And we talked a lot about the pitfalls of financing a movie, but yeah. is there a particular way to go about that nowadays? I mean, just never be afraid to write cold emails. I answer all of them. I mean, I may be an anomaly, but there are people who still care about others and you know, I look at my own son. I mean, he would carry around his his videotapes of his, you know, VHS tapes in those days of his his short films in the odd, on the odd chance that he would run into Marty Scorsese. That was his like, you know, he was going to do that. And lo and behold, one day he did. Mm -hmm. And um, and and Marty helped him. So you just never know. You've got to be. It's all about passion. If you don't have passion, you shouldn't be an actor. You shouldn't be a you shouldn't be a director. You shouldn't be a writer. You should be a, you, those are fields that you, you have to be passionate about. It's not about cold heart. There's nothing cold hearted about it. You know, it's all warm blood and, and just stick to it. if you believe in yourself, and I know that sounds trite, but even for us as producers, you got to stick with it. If you believe in a story and it's got to be told, you take the years to take, I mean, because it isn't overnight. It isn't. Nobody ever wants to do, I for years, literally years, I've been trying to do Black Orpheus. And I came this close to doing it with amazing, amazing people. And a lot of really good people helped me along the way, Quincy Jones and, you know, and uh, Saving Glover. And, you know, back, back in the day, Halle Berry was going to play Euryp Euripides and Eagle Eye Cherry was going to play Orpheus. I mean, we had everything gassed and all. And the film was set up at um, a studio, which the same year was doing Terminator and went bankrupt. And um, we were the baby thrown out with the bathwater. And we actually oh. shot, we shot second unit. Everything was shot for the film and uh, it never happened. And wow. till today, it's the one that got away from me. And I keep thinking I'm going to do it. You know, I have to do it. It's so wonderful, but you know, 
So I've got a script. I've got me. I've got Oh Tom Jobim wrote two extra songs for me before he died. Wow. Yeah, it's all there. It's you know, but um, you know, and that that film, the original one, the best, you know, the best uh, film, nineteen fifty nine, best foreign film. So, wow. yeah, I mean that's incredible, incredible advice, and just with your story with Daniel Radcliffe, the dedication that it takes. A lot of people don't realize that. You know, the people that you see in front of the screen, I believe they're stars, whether people know it or not, whether they're on camera, you know, they're on TV or they're in film. You're a superstar, of course. Um, and a lot of people that you mentioned, you know, Martin Sorsgazi and Bogdanovich and all these people, they're, they're superstars, but they didn't get there for no reason. You know, the yeah. passion and dedication, people don't really Somebody know. Somebody had to help them. You know, Roger yeah. Corman... The, the king of B films, B movies back in the day, Roger Corman started the careers of all of those guys. Mm, Roger yeah. Corman. Yeah. I know I Jack mean, Nicholson talks a lot about him. Right? I mean, yeah. that's who started Peter's career. That's how he got, he got, he got Boris Karloff to be in his first film Targets because Roger Corman had three extra days on contract and he had already finished shooting him out. So he lent him to Peter. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that these young kids found someone to mentor them or to be their protector or godfather or whatever you want to call it, um, who knows what would have happened, you know? But that, that's the guy who was helping Spielberg, was helping, I mean, look at Spielberg's story, his perfect story, you know, hanging out at Universal Studios, you know, make, you know, going, doing everything you could do, sweeping the floors, doing, you know, that's how it happens. You, you, and you, you can't be too big for your britches. What, what I'm afraid a lot of young kids today, they just don't want to do the hard stuff. They, they, you know, I think we, you know, when you see what happened with Silicon Valley and everything, a lot of young people just became really rich with, with not much hard work. You know, they had right. an idea and they were able to, you know, do it. God bless them. But that's not what the film business is. It's still not that. It never was that, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. The work that work ethic is so important, and just reminds me also. And we had so many great quotes and referenced so many amazing people this hour. Uh, what Jerry Seinfeld said is like, you know, who's in show business? The people who want to be in show business. Yeah, it's true, <laughs> and it's true because that was a terrible impression. But the point is, like, yeah, it's like the people that really want to be there, and like I said, whether they're you know sweeping floors or you know picking up splices of film in the old days off the cutting room floor those are the ones that really made it but look at all those guys who came up with the comedy clubs you know i knew jerry and uh worked on that show and and wow. you know paul riser all those kids who came up you know from uh you know all the clubs here in new york and caroline's and catch a rising star and everything else you know how hard it is to do stand-up comedy and how much rejection you go through comics are the most depressing people in the world if you spend a lot of time with them like i have i mean those guys you want to commit harry carry after you walk out of a, you know and a half hour conversation with those guys i mean they are depressing as hell they're not happy people but you know um but then you get to the next level but you gotta you gotta cut your your teeth on something you gotta hone your craft 
And the one thing is you've got to have a worldview. You can't be so focused like, oh, all you want to know is about other showbiz people or no. No, you've got to know about life. If you're going to tell stories, you know, think about it. These are very intelligent people. Coppola, Scorsese, all these people, incredible writers. They understand music. They understand history. They understand, you know, you have to have a worldview. You can't turn off the TV and not listen to the news or just like, you know, only spend your time watching Turner Classic Movies, which is great education. But but you have to know about the world and you have to know how to relate to other people. Because if you think about the stories that are out there and how people's careers started, it was because they were able to convince someone face to face, even if it's on a Zoom call, but there was an interaction. And I think we're losing a lot of that. But this is a very old school business we're in. There's a lot of technology, I agree with you, but it's really old school in so many ways that count. Yeah, the, that relationship thing is a, a big, big part yeah. of it. And that- and Go on a film set and see how old school it really is. Yeah. yeah. You know, yep. we like to say we're green. We're not green. We're green. <laughs> we to be green. We want to be green. But you know what I'm saying? It's very kind of like, it's very manual. It's very tactile. It's, you it know, is. we're still building sets. We're still, you know, we're still painting people's faces. We're still making costumes. We're doing a lot of stuff that you can't go, you know, blickety split, you know, and then all of a sudden it appears. It isn't Cinderella, you know? I mean, mm. this is like hard work. And everybody that goes into making a TV series or a show or a movie, there's so much craftsmanship in it, no matter what your position is, you know? Um, yeah. And that's what people have to realize. This is not easy. It's very laborious and it's very painstaking and, you know, and you have to learn your craft. You really do. Mm. I would yeah. say people who are editing on, you know, on, on, you know, in computers and everything else should, you know, those people who learned how to edit a film on a, on a flatbed, the reason why there were so many wonderful female editors in this business is because years ago they had to handle a scissor and, and reels of film. Yeah. And, women's hands were smaller than men's hands. It was that easy, that simple, an explanation. Well, yeah, you talked about Scorsese, obviously his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, Oh my right? God, like, who's been with him his whole career. Brilliant, yeah, yeah. And then obviously Sally Menke before she passed and yeah. everything that she did with, uh, obviously with Tarantino. Yeah. Uh, you know, but you're totally right. Like it's such a precise and interesting, because that's really where you're giving birth to your film. And that's right? where it's, a film is yeah. made, yeah. in the editing bay. Mm, I, mean, I don't yeah. care what anybody says. I mean, <laughs> you can have all of the, the footage and everything else, but it's the editor that, you know, and the same in the music business, right? I mean, so you, um, you know, and that's why I say to people, not everybody has to be the next Spielberg. You know, there's so many other wonderful things that you can do in the process that are as creative and, and as rewarding, mm. for sure. Yeah, this is something, and then... Um... JL already started kind of where we get to at, uh, at our interviews, which is, you know, what advice would you give? But over the pandemic, I shot a feature film. But before I shot that feature film, you know, it was around the shutdown, I teach as well. And so my students 
you know, they have an online component and then I go for quizzes with them and then they come and work with my company. But we had not done anything because we shut down just like everyone else. Yeah. Then we had this feature that we needed to shoot. So I brought all my students out on set. Wow. It was a week long just in this one house. Yeah. And they were like, <laughs> they went crazy. Yeah. You know, it's like 16 hour days, 17 hour days. You know, you got to get the shots in. You never get tired, though. Mm. It's kind of weird, you know, like under a normal thing, you know, oh, I have to be in bed by 11 o'clock or I have to get up and say, <laughs> when you're on a film set, you go days. I mean, you're lucky you get a shower, you know, I mean, right. But there's something really the adrenaline just just kicks in. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. They, yeah. they certainly yeah. didn't expect that. So but um, even though you tell them and you tell people how hard it is, mm. but, um, you know, that kind of moves us into the second part. When you were, before you got into the film side of things and you were coming up, I guess we could even go before the music side of things. If you could take what you know now, you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, your 19-year-old self, your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give that person? What would you tell I, that person? I would say don't waste time on the things that you don't really want. Because in life, we get a lot of people in our ear, especially when we're at that age when we're about to graduate college or whatever. I always wanted to be in the arts. I always wanted to be in this business. And yet I listened to a lot of people who, who convinced me, no, you should be in something that, you know, is a real job or, you know, cause nobody can, it's, it, nobody considers this a real job and uh, cause you don't get it. You don't always get a paycheck, you know? Um, but you, you have to, you have to follow your, your love and your passion. If you have that creative bug, if it's sitting there in your brain and it's knocking on your, your head, you got to follow it. And the, and the sooner you do that, the, the, you know, you get a head start on it rather than having to wait a lot of years listening to other people's idea of what you should do and not doing it earlier. So, yeah, I would have uh, I would have done that. Mm. That's Sage great advice, advice in and yeah. of itself. Yeah. So this has been wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Of course, we could Thanks. go on and on and on for yeah. hours. Yeah, but um, I think but, you know the good news is is that people die in this bit. So like you could go to your hunt, look at Betty White, and you know, this is one of the only businesses that doesn't spit people out when they read these reach the age of sixty five. Yeah, well, it's funny. I was just reading something about Clint Eastwood today, who's nine. Oh my god! Yeah, he goes and film a year. <laughs> yeah, and he's starting another film now, and and yeah, it, I, I'm trying to remember what what it said, but it was something like. He's like, you know, how do you uh, get the energy to do this at this age? And he basically said something like, you know, I just wake up every morning and try not to let the old man in. That's right. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> just don't let that old you know, man it in. Is, you don't get old if you stay active. I mean, mm -hmm. and the most important thing is keeping your brain active. Mm -hmm. And clearly, if you're a director like he is and an actor, um, you know, you have to use every part of your brain and it keeps it exercised and that that keeps you younger. 
Mm, absolutely. Well, this has been so refreshing. Gorgeous, isn't he? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. For a night, that guy looks amazing. Like he could go <laughs> like for another hundred years. I just saw his last film the yeah. other night. <laughs> yeah. No, it's incredible. And you're amazing, Rose. And thank you so much. Oh, I know that our listeners are going to get so much out of this session. So, and yeah, this interview, but thank you. Guys, and good luck yeah. with everything. Absolutely. Great. All thank right. You so much. Bye, Kevin. And we're back. That was awesome. What a great lady. She was so interesting. Yeah. So many amazing stories. So much history and everything she's been a part of herself. Just incredible. Yeah, incredible absolutely. Mm. But for Rose to have had such a big reach in so many different ways uh, speaks to her ability to connect. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That was fantastic. That was a great interview. So happy to have her so much knowledge, so much wisdom, so much everything, but so much going on in the world. We have a couple more stories we want to get to before we wrap it up. Uh, but coming from the world of podcasting, speaking of, so Spotify has been on the hot seat for the past few weeks, particularly to their, due to their, podcasting superstar Joe Rogan who's come under fire originally for the his some of his uh, COVID-19 related interviews but then some uh, apparently some racial language that he used in the past on some of his podcast and just a lot of folks really digging deep into the world of Joe Rogan now and highlighting some of perhaps his uh, uh, less than glorious moments throughout the years. And it's really just intensified. Uh, this all started when Neil Young threatened to pull his music off of Spotify, that came, became viral, and just all these other things just surrounding the world of Joe Rogan. And uh, it seems like it's really come to a head. Now, Joe Rogan, to his credit, has come out a couple times now and issued either explanations or apologies or somewhere in between of some of his you know, previous interviews. So let's see if that's enough to quell. But if it's not, Spotify, who has come out again saying they're not going to cancel Joe Rogan, they're just going to obviously kind of work to try to either create disclaimers or, you know, go back into some of his earlier podcasts and remove some of his questionable content is sticking with their man and also putting down some money to the tune of $100 million towards content from what they're calling historically marginalized groups to give them bigger platforms on Spotify. So let's see if that plus 100 mil, you know. Well, they've pulled something. episodes too. So yeah. they've pulled 70 episodes over time. I think where the rubber hits the road is there's been a lot of musicians that have pulled out. Neil Young kind of started this. Uh, and you know, they've, they lost a little bit of market share and we talked about it in our last podcast, but you've had other musicians pull out since. Right. So uh, India Irie is another musician. That's one of the latest ones. Right. So, you know, those things, although they don't affect the bottom line as much as that hundred million dollars spend, they mm -hmm. do affect the bottom line in a lot of different ways, not just in the monetary ways, but, you know, in ways of, uh creating some backlash and big right. corporations don't want that kind of backlash so we're gonna see how this all plays out we certainly had to talk about it absolutely um, you know everyone can go back and listen to all of our podcasts we uh, are also yes 
to be fair, we're also on Spotify, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, <laughs> you're not going to find any, you're not going to find <laughs> anything uh, in our back catalog. That we dare you. Adverse. Exactly. But, it's a challenge. Yes. A challenge. And, and basically the, the consolation prize there is you're going to listen to some really incredible interviews. Yes. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> now that we're talking about going back, uh, you all can go back to one of our episodes in the past where I talked about Aquafina, and this is in relation to some of the controversy that's happened with her with uh, what they call a, a black scent mm. and how she's uh, utilized that black scent towards uh, her trajectory in her career. And she right. addressed it kind of, you know, maybe not fully, but at least she addressed it. And um, I'm a big believer in, you know, people being able to outreach as much as they can. But if you are going to reach into another culture and utilize that culture to move forward, then at least uh, there should be some type of recognition or some type of way to acknowledge. And so I think that some of the deficiencies that came there were in the recognition and acknowledgement. And that this happens a lot and it's happened to many different cultures actually. And so look, I've traveled in many, many different ways to many, many different places and I've integrated a lot of my travels in terms of cultures into my lifestyle, into a lot of the things that I do. But certainly, you know, I give reverence to uh, whatever it is that um, I'm referencing. So we're going to see how this plays out. I think that she's tremendously talented. Uh, she has a great range. And, you know, she's actually, you know, very funny. Yeah. So let's just kind of see how that, that all plays out over time. I think yeah. she'll be okay. Yeah. No, yeah, she was great in the Lulu Wang movie as well. Miami girl, by the way. Uh, just, yeah, you know, she won a Golden Globe. So That's right. That's right. Very talented. So, yeah, I think she, hopefully she'll be able to weather that little storm of... Uh, An embattled Golden Globe. Embattlement. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole Globes are in battle. Like, everybody's canceled. <laughs> Let's just cancel everyone. Yeah. Let's do this, Kevin. Cancel everyone. We all start from scratch. Yeah, and restart. Best. Yeah. But just re reset the Refresh. system. Yeah. Um, but yes, we have been making some allusions we, we alluded to earlier in the podcast about some of the Latino waves going through Hollywood right now, one of which is a good friend uh, of mine and a member of the MMFM who's spoken in the past, Ben O'Dell from Three Pot Studio, who along with his partner Eugenio Derbez, one of the top Mexican actors in terms of box office and his crossover ability, has just re-upped their first look film deal at Lionsgate. And so very excited for what Ben's up to. Uh, they've been responsible for films like 2018's Overboard, which made over 91 million at the global box office. There was also a film called Instructions Not Included, which was Lionsgate and Pantaleon, which was Ben's previous shop, uh, which made more than 250 million off a $35 million budget. Not bad. And they're also involved in TV. They've got the Hulu original, The Valet, which is a remake of the French film, uh, which stars Derbez, Samra Weaving, and Max Greenfield. And they're also working together 
on an upcoming film, including one called Unsafe House. So these are, this is a really cool uh, group that's out of LA now and doing some great work within the Latino and US Latino demographics. So, you know, wishing all the best to Eugenio and of course our good buddy, Ben O'Dell, uh, who was a Miami guy, moved back out to LA, but hopefully he'll come back and do some more work down here. But very excited for what Ben's been up to out in LA. Gotta always shout out that 305 connection. We yes. are Screen Heat Miami, so yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's at three hundred five <laughs> South Florida. We we even expand to Florida, so yeah, we always have to give shout outs and especially the people that are making big waves. So, yep, it's all Magic. good. It's all good. It's not evil. Well, or is it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of oldies but goodies, Kevin. Yeah. Yes, I have yes, to yes. say, this Zoom machine is quite evil. I can see everything <laughs> everyone is doing, including my nemesis, Austin Powers. Yeah. Dr. Evil is back, baby. He's back. With a freaking GM Super Bowl ad, no less. Yeah. Yeah. I this mean... is exciting news. So the Super Bowl, obviously, probably the biggest media event in February, right? Uh, continues to push more into February. Remember when it used to be end of January? Yeah. All of a sudden, we're like literally like coming up on Valentine's Day. It's literally, imagine the year that the Super Bowl falls on Valentine's Day. What the uh, hell do you do? It's close. It's, it's close. close. They cut it real close this year. Yeah. But yeah, so the Super Bowl is February 13th. And it looks like they're really upping their content game in terms of their ads. There are a few years, remember, that the Super Bowl ads were kind of, eh, you know, like, eh. But this year, they're bringing out all the big guns, including one of the most iconic characters of all time in cinema comedy history by the great Mike Myers. Dr. Evil is back in a General Motors ad for their new electric cars. So that's going to be really interesting. If you follow General Motors on Twitter at GM, they have a little teaser for what that spot might look like. And that's going to be amazing, Kevin. Yes. And I'm making a prediction because typically when you start to hear some rumblings mm. and little notes and little seeds, that's happening for a reason. I think that Oof. we may get another Austin Powers. Wow. Screen think- heat prediction. This is okay. This is what I'd like to see. Okay, now we're pitching to Mike Myers here. Let's just do an origin story like Joker. <laughs> That'd be great. Dr. Evil. Yeah. We can find out what exactly that French prostitute with web feet named Clary was all about. <laughs> wow, man. What a super fan. <laughs> My father was a boulangerie oh. owner from Belfast with low-grade narcolepsy and a pension for buggery. He made wow. outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. I could go on and on. I literally could wow. go on. Like, yeah, I, I think. Fan. You need to pick I, that. Yes, I I. I, I probably saw that movie in the theaters alone at least a half a dozen times. Wow. And then, you know, really burnt out the DVD player after that. But yeah, one of my favorite characters <laughs> literally of all time. So you can imagine how stoked I was when I saw that little pinky rising yeah. through Twitter. Yeah. And I was and the music. Dun dun dun. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm a sucker for uh. reboots, uh, sequels. So and I, I just feel like between, here. you know, 
Snoop Dogg and Dr. Evil and the Super Bowl. Like, I feel like back to the 90s, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the 90s is back, though. Yeah, yeah, that's the next next wave. So we got to pitch all of our throwback 90s shows now to Netflix. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's right. I mean, skinny jeans are out. Baggy jeans are back. It's all flannel now. We're going to start listening to Nirvana again. It is. (laughs) Now Pearl Jam third right now. Green Day. That's right. You're already yeah. ahead of the curve, Kevin, as always. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, another great episode in the books. I'm Kevin Sharpley. JL Martinez. Screen Heat Miami. We'll hear you next week. Dale. Boom. Boom.